This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So today I want to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden. President-elect Joe Biden is expected to name some members to his cabinet. You still need to vote as if your life depends on it because it does. Hello, I'm Jason Dick, and this is The Transition, a special edition of Political Theater. It has already been an eventful week, and month for that matter, and it's only Tuesday, December 15th. With the Electoral College meeting Monday and certifying Joe Biden's presidential win, Senate Republicans, who after Election Day had largely lost the power of speech when asked whether Biden was the president-elect, finally started acknowledging reality. On Tuesday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell opened the Senate and had this to say. Yesterday, electors met in all 50 states. So as of this morning, our country has officially a president-elect and a vice president-elect. Many millions of us had hoped the presidential election would yield a different result. The Electoral College has spoken. Of course, it being 2020 and all, saying it's over always feels a bit premature. In fact, there are a couple more hurdles to clear before Biden is inaugurated on January 20th. Staff writer Catherine Tully McManus and I discuss a very significant day that awaits on January 6th, when a joint session of Congress meets to count the electoral votes. Spoiler alert, it ain't over yet. We turn the tables on Catherine Tully McManus, who has been my recent co-host uh, for political theater, but now becomes the interviewee. Catherine, you've been working uh, on uh, reporting out a story about uh, the electoral college process and some of the objections that could be uh, lodged by Republican members. Um, let's let's back up a little bit. I mean, on on Monday, the Electoral College voted. They certified Joe Biden's win, uh, 306 to 232 over President Donald Trump. Re- top Republicans have begun acknowledging this, uh, as we noted at the top of the, the podcast in my intro. Uh, Mitch McConnell, you know, talked with Biden. They know each other. They've known each other for a while. Uh, so the process is moving forward. And the next step uh, is the January 6th counting of electoral college votes in uh, in Congress. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I mean, I'm a political junkie, political reporter who has never once paid attention to what happened on Monday, uh, the actual electoral votes being cast in state capitals. Um, that was actually my first time tuning in. So um, that tells you how much attention these steps are getting compared to in a usual election year. Um, Coming up on January 6th, that is actually like a constitutionally identified session of Congress, a joint session of Congress that they hold in order to count the electoral vote. Of course, all we watched on, you know, YouTube and Zoom and all these different things, the votes actually being announced in each state. Mm -hmm. But Congress has a constitutional right and duty to 
kind of certify this vote and finalize it, um, it on January 6th. It's a scenario that is tons of pomp and circumstance. There are these big wooden boxes that kind of have a treasure chest vibe, um, and they hold some of these actual electoral votes. Um, but there are issues that we expect to arise this year. Next year. We've been obsessed with 2020 being such a dumpster fire that we hate to break it to you uh, listeners, but it's going to it's gonna extend at least a little bit into 2021. <laughs> yes. Fail county electoral votes. Usually this is just a standard, yes, there's pump and circumstance, but no news actually being made. Definitely no drama in a usual year. However, the start of 2021 going to look a lot like 2020. Members of Congress can object or um, raise question to the Electoral College votes as they are being counted. State They're read off state by state by the vice president who is presiding, and someone can raise a question, which then would actually cause them to disperse the joint session and send everyone back to their chambers, back to the House, back to the Senate, and they debate and then vote on whether they find the objection valid. What we might see is Alabama Republican in the House, Mo Brooks, he's promised to challenge the Electoral College votes during the joint session. He is um, has some unfounded claims about illegal voting. He started airing these on election day itself and has continued just as the president has to cast doubt and dispersions on the whole election process and saying that basically Joe Biden has stolen the election, which is not the case. And one thing that that Brooks needs is he needs a senator to join him in the objection. It's not clear uh, from yes. uh, our reporting on what's going on in the Senate that there will be a Republican senator to object. So we that's one of those things we'll keep in reserve. We'll, we'll be we'll be watching uh, right now. The Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and his team have been discouraging people from objecting because they think this would just be a, a you know too even too a bridge too far. But one of the things that you've uncovered is that there is. Uh, there is a basis for a potential objection uh, with one of the Georgia electors. Let's talk about that. Right. So Georgia, just to set the stage, is one of these states that the Trump administration and House Republicans have been going after in terms of the legitimacy of the election of President-elect Joe Biden, along with a handful of other states. But an interesting point about this vote on January 6th certifying the Electoral College votes is that an elector from the state of Georgia is actually being sworn into Congress three days previous. On January 3rd, Nakima Williams of Georgia, um, Georgia's fifth congressional district, will be sworn in. Um, so if there is a challenge to the electoral votes of Georgia, she will actually be forced to vote on her own legitimacy as an elector, which is such a bizarre scenario. Yes. And we never say, we never say, Jason, unprecedented. No, because <laughs> not this year. <laughs> we don't, we don't use that because um, there's so much history in both the House and the Senate that you never can really be sure. But 
nobody could dig up a scenario like this for me. What we do know is that she'll only be thrown into that position if Georgia is selected as the challenge to the electoral votes. What we're talking about is at stake is that there is a, a rule that forbids, there's an electoral college rule that forbids members of Congress from serving as electors. But in this case, Williams is still only a member elect. She's not in Congress. She fulfilled her duty as an elector on Monday at, uh, as a member elect. And so she's, because she's not sworn in until January 3rd, most of the people you've talked to are anticipating that this is not an issue. And actually, it came out in, uh, the, the, there was a small bit of precedence in that Hakeem Jeffries, a New York Democrat, who's the chairman of the Democratic Caucus in the House, he was an elector in 2012 for Barack Obama and served in that capacity as a member elect before he was sworn in in 2013. Yes. And the I guess the difference that we can point out is that no one in their right mind in 2012 was claiming that Barack Obama did not win the state of New York. Right. That wasn't on the table. Um, whereas Republicans are very committed in the House right now to questioning the legitimacy of Joe Biden's election. Well, uh, there will be more to come on this story, but thank you for this primer on it. And uh, I look forward to seeing what else you're able to dig up. Absolutely. Meanwhile, Biden continues to do transition type things like pick his cabinet. Today, we found out who will be his nominee to lead the transportation department. It's going to be headed by a former rival for the presidency. Hint, it's not Donald Trump. Staff writer Jessica Wehrman and I talked about a certain Midwestern mayor. Jessica Wehrman, you cover transportation for CQ Roll Call and a uh, little bit of news, not just the omnibus and all that kind of stuff coming out, but we've got cabinet news. Let's talk about that. I am drinking from the proverbial fire hose today. This is why we've got a cabinet secretary, a pick. Let's talk about him. Pete Buttigieg. Mayor Pete, who I just learned through my exhaustive, my exhaustive Twitter research which I have to confirm this, is that his favorite board game is Ticket to Ride, which is about railroads and trains. So th th this, may, this must have been what put him over the edge for Biden, uh, being such a fan of Amtrak. <laughs> I think yeah. so. Being a train guy, Amtrak Joe meets Mayor Pete, yes. But in all seriousness, I have heard tell people kind of questioning, like, why Mayor Pete? Uh, you know, he was the mayor of South Bend. But, like, you know, you look through the biography and it's like, okay, he won the Iowa caucuses. He gave uh, Biden and the rest of the field at least a little bit of a start there. He would be the very first millennial in the cabinet. He's 38 years old. So congratulations, mm -hmm. millennials. You finally got some. <laughs> Millennials get the, the much sought win. <laughs> Does this mean that the transportation department uh, will be full of avocado toast and people complaining about their student loans? Oh, sorry, millennials. Sorry about the humor there. <laughs> I'm not a millennial, but I do. I'm, I'm down with some avocado toast. So if that's that's, I can live with that. And who can't complain about student loans? So I was looking at this because if you look at his resume, you go, "Why is how is this guy a secretary of transportation?" Because he's a former mayor. South Bend, my exhaustive census research found is 102,000 people or so. Mm -hmm. I think the total budget for the city, one of my colleagues pointed out, is 358 million. And so now he's going to this huge agency that has authority over, over everything from the FAA to the federal highways, safety, NTSB, pipelines, which not a lot of people know, all right. kinds of stuff. So why, I mean, why him for this? 
Well, first of all, I think he became a really, really good surrogate for Biden. Mm -hmm. He had actually some viral moments, even like right after the campaign, when he was sort of arguing about, you know, why Biden won, basically. And he really sort of endeared himself to Joe Biden. When he endorsed him, Biden compared him to his son, Bo. I can't imagine higher praise. So he really legitimately likes the guy. Second of all, DOT is actually one of those agencies that has a long history of, wait for it, mayors. Yep. Anthony Fox was a former mayor. LaHood, long before he was in Congress, was a mayor. So it makes sense that, you know, from the standpoint of dealing with infrastructure on a firsthand basis, because who more than a mayor deals with, you know, the potholes and things like that, can deal with this. But beyond that, actually, what I'm kind of concluded from looking at what he said during the presidential campaign was that he's actually kind of an infrastructure nerd uh, beyond the whole ticket to ride thing, the whole I love filling potholes thing. He had a very exhaustive infrastructure plan during the campaign. Mm -hmm. He actually embraced a different way of paying for highways, which is kind of revolutionary. He had a $1 trillion infrastructure plan he was prepared. So he actually kind of knows this stuff. I mean, he beat some pretty credible people. He beat two actual other mayors, uh, the mayor, former mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, who lobbied pretty hard for the job, and uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti, who I think I think he got kind of bogged down by some personnel scandals. Um, there were also some DOT people who were in the mix as possibilities, but you know he is actually in his way for you know a white guy from the Midwest, kind of a barrier breaker. Again, he's a millennial, so he's providing this sort of next generation, which will be a nice counter because you've got a lot of the older guard from the Obama administration that's mm -hmm. anning the uh, the Biden ship. And then he is an openly gay man, which is, you know, with uh, happily married to Chastin or Chasten. I can never, I can say Buttigieg, but I can't say, uh, I can't <laughs> say his husband's first name. So in that way, he is a bit of a barrier breaker and he does actually, you know, appeal to groups that are not just sort of the same straight white bread Guy. So we've got, you know, we've got somebody who did well in politics. He ran for DNC chairman a few years back, too, did not get it, but made a name for himself there. A former mayor, a surrogate for the Biden campaign, a millennial, uh, a gay man, mm -hmm. a veteran also, a former intelligence yeah. officer uh, and, and combat veteran uh, and and Rhodes Scholar. So, I mean, he's got a, got a, just a couple of things on the resume. I mean, it's not like he was a greeter at Walmart and he just stepped <laughs> up to the bat, you know. And, and we also have to remember this. He's a guy, he's a Democrat running in Indiana. If Biden had not picked him for something, I'm not exactly sure what his path forward would have been. I mean, really, Indiana is a pretty Republican state. It's not like Georgia, where it could swing any time now. It's pretty hard to go anywhere as a Democrat in Indiana unless you're Evan Bayh. So this is actually gives him a path. He was kind of in the mix for a, a variety of different cabinet posts. I think this is a pretty good fit, though. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, the, the busy, busy day for you. So talk to you later. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. After the Buttigieg news started making the rounds, Biden hopped on a flight to Georgia, where he waded into the state's two Senate runoffs. The winners of those races will determine who is in the majority in the Senate and the next Congress, and that will go a long way to determining what kind of first term Biden will get to kick off on. Staff writer Stephanie Aiken tuned into Biden's rally for Democratic candidates John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. 
Stephanie Aiken is here to talk about this Biden rally for the two Democratic candidates, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. Stephanie, uh, let's talk about uh, talk about what the president-elect was doing down there besides getting stuck in Atlanta traffic. Biden's visit comes after we've seen um, a steady stream of Republicans going down to the state for the Republican candidates. Um, but we really haven't seen so many Democrats on the ground in Georgia. We've seen a lot of Zoom events, a lot of virtual fundraisers. Biden is really the first high-profile Democrat to come to the state. And it comes, of course, after his victory in the White House was confirmed yesterday by the Electoral College. Electoral College. Right. Yeah. We saw that uh, uh, former President Barack Obama had done an event uh, recently after, after Election Day, uh, a, a virtual event. Um, and the, the president, Donald Trump, had gone down there to stump for Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, the Republican uh, senators who are in the runoffs. Uh, but this is kind of a big deal and comes in a big week for Biden in general. Yes. It is a big deal, and it's a big deal for the Democrats, too, because they've been faced this whole time with the Republicans who are not acknowledging Biden's victory. The Republican Senate candidates, incumbents, um, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, haven't said yet that Biden won, um, but they're nevertheless making the argument across the state that they're the last line of defense between um the full Democratic control in Washington. Now we have Biden coming into the state to make a forceful argument in the way that only he can really that electing Warnock and Ossoff is really the Democrats' um, biggest chance to get his agenda passed in Washington. I was sort of struck that it's not like there aren't a lot of demands on Biden's time, um, you know, with, with the transition going on, you know, he's still got some cabinet picks to make. We're still in the middle of a pandemic and, and so forth. But really, who wins these uh, these two runoffs? I mean, Democrats would need to win both of them to get a 50-50 split and then have Kamala Harris break the the tie break uh, the, or break a tie as in her capacity as president of the Senate, as vice president. So this is really kind of all the marbles. And there, I mean, there's so much money being spent down there. Yeah, it's a phenomenal amount of money. I think at the last count, it was inching towards $500 million from both sides. Democrats are being a little bit outspent, though, and that's an issue that, that they have on the ground. So having Biden there um, really bringing out the importance of this race to their base is even more important. And early voting has started, right? I mean, like this isn't just a one day thing as it has been in, in you know, in, in recent elections and so forth. Um, this is they've they've started early voting. And so this is like the, the Democrats like think that Biden can help them with some get out the vote efforts. Yeah, early voting has started and Biden made that point today telling telling supporters that they don't have to wait until January 5th. They can go out and they can vote now. Um, and that's an important message for both sides as they're competing with holidays, with college football, which is a big deal in Georgia, and with the general kind of fatigue after what's been a, a really long year for everybody. It, we were uh, saying uh, with uh, your colleague, Catherine Tully McManus, that, uh, you know, the, we're talking about some of the electoral college votes and, and things that are going to be happening in January. Everybody, I think, thinks that or is hoping that there will be a hard cutoff with 2020. But really, it's just going to keep going into 2021. And the runoffs are on January 5th. Yeah. And who knows how long it's going to take us to get a result. Might not be over then, right? Complicating it even further is that Kelly Loeffler, uh, regardless of whether she wins or loses, she would remain... Uh, in in office until, you know, like after 
everybody's sworn in because she's serving an unexpired term for Johnny Isaacson, who left. So on January 3rd, Leffler will still be a senator. And then, ha- you know, then the January 5th will be the runoff. And then however long it takes to certify. David Perdue will not be a senator, though, because his term expires on January 3rd. So Georgia will be without a senator for as long as it takes to get a winner in his run against John Ossoff. <laughs> So it's all kinds of weird. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate you keeping tabs on it because I I think I would go nuts if if I had to watch every uh, nook and cranny of this race uh, or these races. So thank you very much, Stephanie. Well, thank you for having me, Jason. All right. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Theater's The Transition. On behalf of the CQ Roll Call Newsroom, thank you for listening. 